0: From the studios of Farm Journal broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report.
1: Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this Easter weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. USDA hits the market with some surprises, and prices exploded on Wednesday.
2: Nobody got this. You know, I was certainly thinking where prices were and we would see fence post to fence
1: post. With positive prices, farmers in the Corn Belt say planting can't come soon enough. Biden unveils a massive transportation bill. The funding will fuel broadband, roads, and bridges, but we'll tell you how the president's climate focus may also come into play. Tragedy turned into generosity.
3: It was breathtaking. I mean, it was was pretty humbling.
1: How one county fair turned a life lost into a sale of compassion. It's a story of heartbreak and generosity this Easter weekend. And in John's world.
4: Are the roaring 20s back?
1: Now for the news, it was a double dose of USDA reports this week and the grain markets making huge moves upwards following USDA's release of its prospective plantings and grain stocks reports. Now we begin with what USDA expects farmers will be planting this spring. USDA says its farmer-based survey shows Corn acres will hit 91.1 million acres this year. That's up less than 1% over last year. Soybeans, 87.6 million acres. That's up 5% from 2020. Both corn and soybeans coming in well below what the trade expected. For all wheat, that number, 46.4 million acres, also up 5%. That's above what was expected. And cotton at 12 million acres, down less than 1%.
5: This is the the
6: first part of a bid-ask process. The farmers have put out their bid and the market has said, hey, that's not enough. And that's why we see prices limit up. Um, I'll just remind folks that, you know, this is kind of you're you're watching the ongoing acreage negotiation live. And this survey is the first part of that bid. So. From a purely price standpoint, however, it's clear that the market was surprised given the commodity prices that we had.
1: Now the prospective plantings report definitely catching the trade-off guard. And here's what you see state-by-state breakdown of those planted acres, starting with corn. Look at North Dakota, a 69% increase while neighboring Montana drops 13%. And for soybeans, a big drop in Texas down 33%. But as you can see, the I-states and Nebraska all plan to increase soybean acres this year. Well, along with digesting planting intentions, traders were taking a hard look at grain stocks numbers, and there are some interesting things here as well. Corn stocks, Put at 7.7 billion bushels, that's down 3% from March of last year, and the lowest in six years. Soybeans at 1.56 billion bushels, that's down 31% from this time last year, and the lowest in five years. Wheat is down 17% at 1.31 billion bushels.
6: Well, the feed use on corn was stronger than the trade thought, particularly after the hog and pig report. So the bottom line is we had a very strong reaction to the upside. Uh, usage stronger than we thought. And uh, on the soybean stocks, a little bit uh, found back about 77 million soybeans.
1: Now, sorghum also gaining ground with all stored positions totaling 137 million bushels. That's down 17 percent from a year ago. Well, also this week, President Biden unveiling a massive $2.25 trillion infrastructure plan. The plan is aimed at improving America's roads, waterways, broadband, as well as the electric grid. It's called the American Jobs Plan, and here are some of the highlights that could have a direct impact on ag. That includes $115 billion to repair and rebuild bridges, highways and roads, $100 billion to build a more resilient electric grid, $100 billion to expand high-speed broadband, and $174 billion to the EV market by encouraging automakers to retool their supply chains and factories to accommodate the transition to electric vehicles, as well as create sales rebates and tax incentives to buy the vehicles. But how will these projects be paid for? Well, Farm Journal Washington analyst Jim Wiesmeyer says there are a series of tax changes that the president is proposing. That includes moving the corporate tax rate from 21 percent to 28 percent. That also includes increasing the global minimum tax paid from the 13 percent to 21 (laughs) percent. Well, happening right now, crews are still working to deal with a huge backlog of ships at the Suez Canal. Salvage teams were finally able to free a colossal container ship that had been stuck sideways in the canal this week. Here you see the moment that crews were able to get that boat dislodged from a sandy bank. As ships moved along the canal, tugboats blared their horns in celebration, their work ending a crisis that had clogged one of the world's most vital waterways for almost a week. But several shipping lines say the disruptions to the global shipping industry could take weeks and possibly months to clear. About 30% of the world's shipping container volume moves through the 120-mile-long canal daily. Well, the largest pork company in the world says 2020 hog processing tumbled 46 percent in China as African swine fever cut supplies. An official with WH Group says the use of illicit ASF vaccines in the country last year caused increased infections and that cut supplies and lifted prices. The company is saying in an earnings release that it imported 700,000 metric tons of meat last year with 70 percent of it coming from the U.S., The processor expects hog production to climb this year, but it also commented that prices will likely remain well above those overseas markets. Well, as you may be enjoying Easter ham this weekend, we're going to do our best to really digest these USDA reports that were out this week. And the market is also focused on weather. So as how is planting weather shaping up and what else did the reports tell us that's to come on U.S. Farm Report this weekend. meteorologist Mike Hoffman joins us now with weather this Easter weekend. Mike, a windy week for many viewers, but as the forecast turns warmer, farmers are ready to plant, Mike.
7: Good morning to you, Tyne. Yeah, absolutely right. You kind of hope to start getting into the fields across many parts of the country. It's going to depend on where you live. There's going to be some weaker systems, but no major rains coming our way, and it has warmed up again across most of the country. You can see still those wet areas. Arkansas, northern Louisiana, into the uh, southern Appalachians, parts of the mid-Atlantic. Also some new wet areas over the past couple of weeks anyway for the west central plains. Still some parts of the western lakes on the wet side as well. But, oh boy, that just looks awful in North Dakota, especially northern parts up along the Canadian border. Very, very dry. Drier in Florida, still dry in much of the northeast and obviously most of the west. Where the drought monitor has been the worst case scenario, you can see that uh and also south texas now going back a week well it's still been fairly dry in these areas it has gotten worse but it's actually gotten better the last couple of weeks parts of the west central plains there where you folks have gotten a little bit of moisture but let's go forward see what's going to happen the ridge has built back into the middle of the country even into parts of the east so it's uh, ended up warming up on this easter sunday Uh, And you can see uh, it will uh, continue to stay warm for a little while. And then we see some colder air, chillier air, let's call it, starting to come into the uh, central and western portions of the country by later this week. And that will uh, spread eastward. Now, if this happens, if we have a cutoff low sitting over the Great Lakes, that will be kind of chilly. And there will be some areas of showers as well with that as we head through next weekend. But that's something we'll be watching. That's just one computer model showing that. Here's Monday's forecast. Weak system in the uh, upper Mississippi Valley, scattered showers there. Another system riding along the front, warming up through the uh, eastern uh, two-thirds of the country there. By Wednesday, then, we're going to start to see this separation from the chillier air to the north of the front to the warmer air to the south. There will be some areas of moisture along it. By Friday, then, we'll see the main system over the western Great Lakes with some scattered showers and thunderstorms. Uh, to the southeast of the fronts and then just scattered rain showers mainly northern fringe getting a little bit of snow and taking a look at the 30 day outlook for temperatures i'm going above normal for much of the center of the country into the southwest and much of texas also florida near normal as you could get a couple of shots of chillier air in the east below normal only in the far northwest 30 day outlook for precipitation this is obviously a a tough forecast but uh, going above normal at this point Uh, because of some moisture flowing up out of the Gulf of Mexico as we have those uh, cold fronts trying to come southward. Uh, So above normal uh, parts of the southeast, but especially Tennessee, Ohio, River Valley into the Great Lakes, below normal for the southeast, and then from Texas through the west central plains through the southwest below normal. And that's not good news because most of that area is already very, very dry. Tyne?
1: Well, how focused on the weather are the markets right now? That's as USDA's Big March reports are behind us. Mark Gold and Chip Nelliger join me next.
4: It starts with a plan. That's why America's conservation ag movement is inviting you to get your farm business ready for 2021 with a free resource stewardship planning guide. Get your free guide today at agweb.com ACAM.
1: Well, welcome back to our marketing roundtables this weekend. Mark Gold, Chip Nellinger, after a wild ride in the markets this week. We have already highlighted the acreage report. We talked about the grain stocks. Mark, I want to start with you. What provided this explosive price action on Wednesday after the reports?
2: Well, when you see four over 4 million acres, 4.2 million acres, not accounted for, it, you've got to think, you know, where are those acres? And, you know, when beans didn't reach anywhere near 90 million acres and corn wasn't over, you know, 92, 93, was it 91, one? I mean, it's explosive, particularly when you've got the stocks as tight as they are right now. So this was enough to say, you know, nobody got this. You know, I was certainly thinking where prices were that we would see fence post to fence post. And granted, this is an intentions report. It's not the final number, but this is an awful low number. And it's hard to step in front of this, knowing that the funds have expanded position limits.
1: Yeah, Chip. I mean, when you're looking at 91 million acres for corn, and the expectations, you know, were uh, were 90 to 92. You have soybeans under 88 million acres. Where did these acres go?
8: That's going to be the question the market asks itself for uh, really three months until the the June acreage report is going to come out here at the end of June. Uh, as you as you look down every major uh, crop segment, that's what you have to ask yourself. Where are all the acres at? And uh, I I just think that they will get revised at some point. But as Mark mentioned, uh, you know, this is the number they're going to go off of. It's explosively bullish. And uh, it really sets the bar even that much higher that we've got to get this crop in the ground in good shape and a good growing season and raising big yields, or we're going to cut the carryout to frighteningly tight levels. And that's what the market's going on. And until we find these acres back, which at the earliest, is going to be the end of June, this is what the market's going to trade off of.
1: Yeah. So Mark, I mean, you joined us right after the Ag Outlook Forum. You know, you said that you could see even USDA's original forecast to see a combined number of, of corn and soybean acres this year. You said that you wouldn't be surprised if we saw even more acres than that, just because, you know, the, the prices that we were seeing today, so do you think, I mean, this is kind of the first look at the farmer-based survey. Is this acreage story over?
2: Well, it's hard to say, but what's interesting here is that the American farmer didn't respond to these higher prices, which I don't think we've ever seen. Normally, the American farmer shoots himself in the foot and, you know, just goes hog wild with acres. And, you know, we see some lower prices out here. So this was really you know, a big surprise, as Chip mentioned, if we have any kind of summer drought here this summer or any, any threat to production, you know, these prices could move significantly higher than where they're at. And even, you know, I think we added 2 million acres into wheat, uh, which should have been bearish the wheat. Right now, the wheat's up 17 cents. Uh, but, uh, you know, where's the other two, two and a half million acres? Right. And will that be enough if if wheat acres are that high? You know, is that going to be enough to change the balance sheet? I don't think so.
1: Yeah, and Chip, you know, there was talk that maybe after this report, depending on price action, we could see some acres shift. But when you see this explosive price action across the board, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's going to sway farmers one way or the other.
8: No, uh, we have to wait once this market uh, trades again and kind of gets uh, out of the lock limit up environment, what that ratio is going to do between corn and beans. But with this view uh, of acres out there, You know, it's really going to be a fight to the finish. Uh, Again, I think historically, as I look at the calendar, talk to producers in central Illinois, down in that Decatur, Springfield, Lincoln area, if we don't get a lot of rain here at the end of this week, next week there'll be planters rolling. Historically, early plantings always increase corn acreage. But again, um, you know, not to, to beat a dead horse here, this is what the market's going to trade off of for the foreseeable future and uh, it is wildly bullish and uh, you know really limits your downside going forward and really if we get any type of a, of a blip out there with weather or production uh, could get wildly explosive all that being said i think you can't get too bulled up right i, I think two things stand out to me i'm assuming they're going to find back some acres uh, on the june report and i'm assuming that we're not going to go higher on demand going forward they have the bar so high So two things, if they add acres here in June, if we don't um, continue to hit the USDA targets on demand and we have to ratchet corn and bean demand going forward uh, lower, that could be something that takes the wind out of the sails.
1: All right. Well, we also do have grain stocks. We haven't even got into that yet. So let's take a break later on the program. We'll dig into what these acres possibly mean for carryout and what the grain stock story told us on Wednesday. That's later on Farm Report. Well, are we seeing a repeat of the Roaring Twenties? John Phipps joins us this Easter weekend.
4: Reports of recent land sales in my area are trickling in, and I think we can pinpoint where that $46 billion in government payments went around here anyway. Unless my information is worse than usual, farmland around here has jumped at least 20% from last year. Of course, numbers like this are based on a tiny number of sales in one location mine, and not a national average, so your results may vary, as they say. Land appreciation was a slam dunk prediction, though. Even with rising input costs like fertilizer, land remains the scarcest resource. The once-in-a-lifetime nature of farmland sales and unbelievably low borrowing costs are adding fuel to this trend. Meanwhile, the stock market has some observers hearkening back to last century's roaring 20s. Assuming we stopped measuring in the fall of 1929 before the crash, the Dow Jones roughly quadrupled during that period, which is the most frequently remembered aspect of the economic boom of those years. I think it is safe to say that that type of value growth is unlikely. But not all the nation enjoyed good times then, especially not in agriculture. The boom times for them had passed and were a function largely of World War I. In fact, the next period of general ag prosperity would not come until the Second World War. If we are to have a stretch of good times on America's farms while the stock market also booms, it would be a historical rarity. Both periods, however, have some similarities. The ag boom of 1914 to 20 involved a massive pandemic, overseas crop failures, notably in the Ukraine, and rising incomes for most Americans. The social upheaval of the 1920s, like prohibition, widened the economic and cultural gaps between rural and urban America and set the stage for the mass exodus of people from the farms during the Great Depression. The 1920s also saw the advent of mechanization, beginning with automobiles, causing the horse population in the U.S. to peak in 1922 around 20 million. I think references to the Roaring Twenties are popular right now for several reasons. That period has disappeared from living memory, of course. The images in our mind are largely shaped by the emerging film industry of the day, and factual accuracy was not one of the goals then and we can't find any other period that matches up even as well as the 20s, which isn't very similar. My best guess is all of us geezers will be able to tell this reminds me stories without fear of correction or interruption, but they won't help very much to prepare for the future.
1: Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, Machinery Pete has some antique iron to share. Tractor Tales is next.
4: Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're Massachusetts bound. Check out
9: a retired John Deere A.
10: This is a 1949 John Deere A that was purchased down the street. My cousin found it. When he passed away, we bought it from the state and finished the restoration on it. So it's been right here in the whole area the whole its whole life. Well, we took the whole thing right back down to the motor. Had to do the heads in it because the valves were stuck. Did the whole the whole thing right from the frame up. We had it all torn right apart and started all over again. To get all the gauges, everything back to where they should be and put it right back together, hopefully the way it's supposed to be. We painted it, sandblasted the thing with a walnut sandblast because they used the walnuts they don't chip as hard. And it took all the rust and everything off and we got it all primed down. And, and I got my father's tractor now with D-19, Alice Chalmers, that we're redoing. That was his original tractor that we found, bought back, and we're redoing that one. Shows and tractor pulls. Yeah, maybe rake a little bit of hay with it. That's it. Everything works on it. No, nope. like I said, we use it for raking a little bit of hay and pulling the hay wagon once in a while, and that's about it, and we go do tractor pulls with it. A tractor drive, probably just as good as the day it was out of the showroom.
1: Well, we highlighted USDA's acreage report earlier in the show, and as prices improve, farmers are excited to plant. That's next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition.
1: Well, as many farmers prepare to plant, some farmers say this is the most excited they've been in over a decade. That's this week's Farm Journal Report. As March Madness turns into game time for planting, farmers are ready to hit the
0: field. We got most everything done last fall, so we're just sitting here patiently waiting uh, for go time.
1: Illinois farmer Steve Pittstick says it's a steady crop rotation on his farm this year. On my
0: part of the state, we're pretty much a 50-50 uh, corn and soybean
1: rotation. And with the recent price spike on inputs, he does not see that story changing over the next few weeks.
0: Uh, soybean prices are strong. Uh, nitrogen prices have gone up, so I don't see any shift to corn or to beans. Uh, just kind of steady as it goes. Uh, we're kind of on the dry side. So if we're going into a drier spell, I want, you know, the beans seem to get through the year better uh, when it's on the drier side. Uh, But again, it depends on what happens all summer. So uh, I don't see any big change here.
9: 250 miles west. Typically we would be 60% corn, 40% soybeans. This year it's going to be more 55, 45.
1: Acres may see a slight shift.
9: There's some places we typically would have done More corn on corn and we'll still be slightly heavier corn than bean acres, but due to some derecho complications, residue management type stuff, we're going to go back to soybeans on a couple pieces.
1: Caleb Hamer is on the northern edge of where the derecho hit last August and the agronomic scars are still there.
9: The southern half of where we farm got hit, whereas the northern half was untouched. So some of those pieces to the south are going to get more tillage than we're used to doing.
1: 280 miles to the west of Hamer sets Quinton Keneally.
11: We have a little bit tougher time growing really top-notch beans, so we tend to be a little corn heavy. And with the flood of 2019, we kind of got some rotations off. So this year we did a couple extra corn on corn fields, but usually we're sticking to our rotation as we would do normally.
1: A 10 to 15% increase in corn acres for this Nebraska farmer. A decision based on agronomy and not necessarily
11: the futures price. It seems like they both kind of moved up evenly and uh, where we can tend to grow better corn, we uh, tend to lean towards the corn side, but... uh, it actually kept us probably from doing a little bit extra corn on corn, so kept some bean acres in there, I would say.
1: USDA's prospective plantings report shocking the markets this week. While traders expected a record number of corn and soybean acres this year, USDA's first farmer-based survey showed that may not
11: happen. It was not. Not a new record. Certainly not even 180 above 180 million acres. Uh, we saw that in 2018 and didn't come close to that.
1: These Ag web maps show overall farmers intend to plant just slightly more corn than they did in 2020 with farmers in Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois and Indiana saying they will plant fewer corn acres than last year. Instead, some of those acres may be switching to soybeans with Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois and Indiana farmers all showing an increase in overall soybean acres this year. But University of Missouri economist Ben Brown says questions still remain.
11: To me, the big story of time Tyne is we've still got 3 million acres out there that uh, I would consider have, have disappeared from our 2018 benchmark, uh, Grant 2019-2020, a lot of weather issues. So we still got 3 million acres that I don't think went to solar, I don't think went to development, or at least not that many of them. And so are they going to show up in, when we get to June? Uh, Or, you know, where are they? And I think that's the big question or the big takeaway from today that's created some of this bullishness in the markets.
1: But from Nebraska to Illinois, the appetite to plant is there this year.
0: Probably 10 days or two weeks before we start planting.
1: Pitstick says that timeline may be pushed.
0: We've got a five-acre field that my dad planted early in 1976. And ever since then, whenever we get a chance to do it in late March or April, Uh, early April, we go out and plant it. So it's very possible that could happen uh, here Wednesday to Friday somewhere.
1: Hamer says from drought and derecho last summer, his area saw some much-needed moisture
9: this winter. We had a lot of snowpack, uh, maybe more so than usual. And when it did melt, it pretty much all went in like 10 consecutive days. With that much snow melting at one time, one would have thought you would have seen a lot of flooding along the small creeks and ditches around here, but there really wasn't, which hopefully means most of that went down into the soil profile.
1: Rains also soaking Nebraska soils in March, a welcome sign for farmers whose fields were desperate for a drink.
11: We will be starting here probably into this week, next week, and uh, our planning date, we usually aim for April 15th. It's kind of our aim date. Uh, our planning date's April 10th, and we tend to just go a few days after that.
1: Entering into April, the countdown is on for this planting season, and outlooks are improved.
9: As far as getting ready for the growing season, I feel like we're situated as well as we've been in a while. Um, stuff's been through the shop, ready to go. Looks like maybe mid or late this week we can get in and start putting on some anhydrous.
11: So this year, we uh, made some updates last year and get some equipment and things turned over that we'd uh, ran a little bit longer than what we're used to. So this should, uh, it's looking good for 2021, I'm hoping.
1: Those outlooks are a 180 from last spring.
0: Last year was as bad as I remember in my career, and I think this year is a, I'm as excited about the year going forward as I've been since probably 2007 or eight. With
1: a hunger to plant and a price incentive to do so, farmers are ready for the 2021 crop year. Well, there was much more out of USDA's reports that we didn't have a chance to talk about yet. So we'll talk about the impact that it could have on the markets in the months to come. That's with Chip Nellinger and Mark Gold next. Rejoining us now, Mark Gold, Chip Nellinger. Mark, we talked a lot about acreage in the first roundtable. We also had the grain quarterly grain stocks report that came out. Some analysts thought that may be the market mover on Wednesday. But it kind of took a backseat to acreage. So what did the grain stocks report tell
2: us? Well, it told us that we're starting to ration out these these bushels that we do have. Uh, The bean numbers came in uh, actually higher than last month by about uh, 3 million bushels. They were looking. Some people were concerned that they could cut it 10 or 20 million uh, bushels. Not on the carryouts. On the stocks numbers which would affect the carryouts but the uh, the corn number was was down only about 70 million on the stocks from what they were looking for so we still have you know tight corn stocks but not as bad as it was the wheat number was bearish so you know on its on its own the report from the stocks end was mildly bearish but it doesn't make a darn bit of difference when you look at the acreage numbers and we are going to be tight when we see the next supply and demand
6: report.
1: Yeah, if USDA's first farmer-based survey holds true, and we do plant less than 88 million acres of soybeans this year, Chip, what does that mean?
8: Well, it means it's uh, very tight on the balance sheet. You plug in trendline yields and make the assumptions on demand that they gave us on the February Outlook Forum from the USDA, and uh, you're well under 100 million bushel carryout on beans, and you're cutting carryout on corn. Now, those are big assumptions, right, that uh, that demand number, as I mentioned earlier, is pretty high. But that's what the market's going to use on the upcoming May crop report when we get our first look at new crop. They're going to use the acres that we got today. They're going to use the demand numbers very close to probably what the uh, Outlook form said. And when you plug that in the equation, even with the big yields, we're cutting the carryout. So uh, it just raises the bar that much higher that we have to have a perfect growing season and big yields or we've got some explosive potential down the road here this summer.
1: Yeah, and with these acreage numbers and the potential carryout situation, Mark, is this telling us we need acres not just this year but, but next year too?
2: Well, it certainly seems so. But, I, you know, I agree with Chip. You still have to assume that they're going to use the same kind of demand numbers. Personally, I think demand's going to be really down. We haven't seen uh, the Chinese in the bean market in ages. We've got African swine fever in their herd. We don't know how bad it is. One of the Chinese made a comment today that there is no gap in, in shortages of corn there. So you know, is the demand gonna be there? I don't think so, not from the Chinese anyway. And I think we're having a lot of trade disputes there. And that's, let's face it, the big part of this whole deal has been the Chinese business. And if we lose a good chunk of that, yeah, they should lower these carryouts, but are they going to add some back because of a lack of Chinese demand? We'll have to see what the USDA does.
1: Well, that leads into my next question, Chip. And my next question is, what would pull out, you know, the rug from under this market at this point?
8: Yeah, I think Mark nailed it on the head. And I would tend to agree with him that it's a mere image of a year ago where we had demand way too low. Yeah, we knew we had a trade deal, but China wasn't coming to the market. And in result, we had that demand way too low it's almost the exact opposite this year. We've got the demand ratcheted likely way too high. And if China backs away, we add a couple million more acres that kind of seem to be missing from this March intentions report. And we have a big crop and early plantings, all of a sudden that carryout isn't as tight. So, you know, at face value, this report here, very bullish, but we have to not get that permable uh, attitude thinking that, you know, life's great. and We're going to $7 corn and $16 $16 beans, because there are some things out there that could really change the equation. It just goes towards using some of the tools out there to lock in great profitability, have the upside open via some different strategies that are available, and then have a great summer, right? You have the, the uh, you know, the, the game one, no matter what happens to price, if you use some of these tools available to lock in those large profit margins that the market's going to offer us.
1: Well, what a roller coaster week. Heading into Easter, Mark Gold, Chip Nellinger, thank you so much for really providing some clarity this weekend. We really appreciate it. All right, let's take a quick break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, this Easter weekend, as we celebrate new life, there's one famous man who had evil in his name, but his life was full of hope. Andrew McRae shares the story of risk-taker evil Knievel in American Countryside this weekend.
6: Robert Knievel was born in Butte, Montana in 1938. He began a motorcycle shop in his teens, and to promote the business, he decided to jump a box of rattlesnakes in a tethered mountain line in a local parade.
5: And hit the box of snakes. The snakes went everywhere, the crowd went crazy, and it was almost an instant hit right then.
6: It was quite a beginning for Robert, but of course, you don't know him by that name.
5: He got put in jail one night, and there was another Guy in town that caused a lot of trouble, his last name was Knoffel. And the jailer famously said, Tonight's going to be a long night. We got awful Knoffel and evil Knievel in the, in the jail. And he kind of thought that was cool.
6: But he decided to spell evil E V E L. And so the evil Knievel brand was born. On New Year's Eve, 1967, while still mostly unknown to the nation, he attempted to jump the fountains at Caesar's Palace. He filmed the event on his own and then sold the film to Wide World of Sports.
5: Probably his most famous jump was Caesar's Palace, um, because the crash was just terrible.
6: While there were some infamous crashes, there were plenty of successes.
5: People would be surprised to know that he jumped over 175 times. And they'd also be surprised to know that he only crashed 19, because it seemed like he crashed every time. That's what you always saw.
6: Mike Patterson owns the Harley Davidson dealership in Topeka, Kansas. They specialize in motorcycle restoration and got a chance to work on Evil Knievel's Mack truck that he took on the road for jumps. When the truck restoration was complete, he convinced the truck's owners the place for it was right here at his dealership.
5: Literally, we had the museum constructed to, so the truck could fit in here with an inch to spare. And uh, then we built everything else around it.
6: The Evil Knievel Museum was born. You could spend hours here looking at motorcycles, stunt videos, x-rays of Evil's many broken bones, and plenty of memorabilia surrounding the daredevil legend. In some ways, Evil was bigger than life, and perhaps that's what was the most difficult thing about being himself.
5: There's a quote that we have up in the museum, and it says, I created Evil Knievel, and then he kind of got away from me, you know, because he had to keep reinventing and doing something bigger all the way up to that grand of jumping the Snake River Canyon.
6: It's hard to pick just one jump from Evil Knievel's life that sets him apart from everyone else. But today, people of all ages are coming to this museum to learn about one of America's superhero daredevils. Traveling the countryside in Topeka, Kansas, I'm Andrew McCray.
1: Thanks, Andrew, and you can hear more of his travels at AmericanCountryside.com. Well, when we come back, John Phipps has customer support.
4: It starts with a plan. That's why America's Conservation Ag Movement is inviting you to get your farm business ready for 2021 with a free resource stewardship planning guide. Get your free guide today at agweb.com ACAM.
1: The reality of farm economics. Here's John Phipps.
4: From Jonathan Harnish in Lake Oswego, Oregon. The report this morning about the math of taxing the wealthy totally missed the point. The conclusion was the solution is not political, but one of math. That conclusion totally ignored the bigger problem of what to do with and who does what with the tax money. If the money is disproportionately taken from the wealthy and misdirected, wasted, or spent mostly on government, unions, and those who do not want to be productive members of society, then the plan not only does not work, but it also makes the misdistribution of wealth much worse. This type of socialist presentation has no place on the Farm Report. Thank you for your feedback, and you're right. When I talked about whom to tax, where to find the money, there simply wasn't enough time to address how taxes are spent. I do want to highlight something more important, how socialism and socialist have become popular but uncertain buzzwords now the classic definition of socialism is a political and economic theory of social organization which advocates that the means of production, distribution, and exchange should be owned or regulated by the community as a whole. Nations can be thought of as being on a scale between socialist and market economies with n- neither, or none of them at pure form. Nations are all a mix of the two systems calculations of the percent of GDP generated by the private sector. One good measure gives a range of 23% private in Cuba to 89% in the U.S. Now most western nations are between 85 and 90%. China's economy is 60% private, so even though the government owns factories and all the farmland, it's still mostly a market economy. In fact, capitalism has become the overwhelmingly dominant economic system in the world today. However, even market economies have some socialistic uh, policies—free health care in Britain, free university education in Denmark, state-owned financial institutions in many countries, including ours. Our agricultural policy is clearly socialistic, with 40 percent of net farm income from public money. That's right, the same ratio as China's economy. As a result, it is impossible for us to talk about farm economics without discussing programs many people label as socialism. Regardless, invoking the S word reminds me of how we used to call people pinkos and commies back in my youth. Maybe it's effective as an insult to some who don't understand modern economies, but it conveys no useful information, nor does it further understanding.
1: Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, a story of hope and heartbreak, as one county livestock show had compassion on full display. We'll have that story next. Well, when tragedy struck one Texas community last week, it was a county livestock sale that proved agriculture knows no divides. A county livestock show this week turned into so much more.
3: The incident happened on Friday evening, Friday late afternoon, um, and the sale was on Saturday at noon
1: tragedy that struck one of their own. Chad Walker, a Texas trooper, ambushed and shot on the side of the road last Friday.
3: He was an awesome father, an awesome friend, awesome husband, just always happy. Always had that little smile on his face. He's good people and he loved to uh, you know, he dedicated his life to civil service and just loved to help folks.
1: Chad Walker, not just a friend, but a father to two girls who showed at the fair only days before.
3: We just was sitting there and doing cell order and it just it just laid out that way. The Walker family's rabbits last to sell as the community stepped in. It was just kind of breathtaking at all the all the support we had and all the people there that, that, that donated. The ag industry is 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 full of uh, faith and family and um, gives you hope. <laughs> i tell you it does
1: an act full of faith for a family grieving.
3: I didn't know how get, I didn't know how much would be. I, I never dreamed this for sure. That
1: support started pouring in even before the Walker's rabbits sold
3: and the people that are there alone just sitting there and donated 58,000 that just. It was over. It was breathtaking.
1: A humbling act of generosity that
3: just kept going. We did sell Charlie's rabbits and they bring a thousand and then a, a group of guys went together and, and donated another uh, 6,000 on top of that.
1: And after Saturday's sale, the Limestone County Livestock Association set up an account. That account accepted more donations for the Walker family, and it's already reached over $40,000. And then Thursday, Superior Land Auction raised $11,000 during an event in Amarillo.
3: Outpour of people that didn't even know him, that, that knew somebody that knew him or knew, I mean, they just, it's, it's, I tell you what, I was, there's a bigger plan here than we all knew, in my opinion.
1: The love spans for miles, for a man many never met. But everyone that knew Chad Walker says he was a man of faith, honor, and sacrifice.
3: It's just our industry. It's what we do. We, uh, we back our own. Stand mind who mind who comes with us. I mean, it's just it's the love of the community and the, and the industry. There's no doubt.
1: Oh, what a heartbreaking story. But what? A story of community. All right, that does it this Easter weekend for U.S. Farm Report. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.